Good evening. Um, I'm not going to lie, when Philip told me his idea for that trailer, I was a little bit nervous because you can get in a lot of trouble for showing the statue of David in the, the wrong way these days. Um, and so I, I made sure to check it out. I think we landed on the kind of PG-13 side of things, which I, I thought was all right. Um, yeah, we're kicking off this new series on David. Um, and so... I think he's a really important character for, for us to, to understand. He, he's a really important guy in the Bible. Um, in terms of like ancient literature, he's probably one of the richest accounts of anyone's life that, that we've got. Um, there are more words dedicated to David than anyone else in the Bible other than Jesus. So kind of Moses, all the big names, there's fewer words. David, he's second place after Jesus. Um, and so I was thinking in the last couple of weeks, like how, how do we kick off this series? We're going to be looking over the next four weeks at David's life through four particular encounters that he had with, with people. Um, and so how do we kind of tee that up? How do we set that up? And um, there's no easy way to... To explain this, we're just going to have to go for it. Um, long story short, I spent my bank holiday weekend with an artificial intelligence chatbot getting it to create dating profiles for David. Um, this is what we've got. So we're going to run with this content. Um, first up, here's David through the eyes of salt. Uh, now, if you don't know what salt is, it's like hinge, but for Christians. Uh, so, yeah, if David made a, a salt profile, it'd probably look a bit like this. This one's a bit, a bit blurry. Um, but some things worth, worth knowing about David. He lived uh, probably about 3,000 years ago, so um, about 1,000 years before Jesus. And in terms of biblical history, either 300 or 500 years, depending on how you count it, after the exodus from Egypt. So parting of the Red Sea, all of that, that sort of stuff. And uh, he became the second king of Israel. So that's an important thing and, and worth understanding the kind of timelines because he's the second king, guy before him called Saul. He was the first king. Before that, Israel hadn't had a king. So uh, they would be, they'd been ruled by a, a series of judges. And, and that was important because God was the king of Israel until the people got really grown and they groaned and they moaned and God got fed up and was like, fine, have it your way. You can have a king. Uh, and so David's the second one, one of those. Um, so that's uh, some important things. Second dating profile is, uh, is Hinge. So here's David through the eyes of, of Hinge. Now, if you don't know what Hinge is, Hinge is like salt, but for non-Christians or for Christians who've completed salt. Um, <laughs> So here's, some, here's maybe how, how David would introduce himself. Um, uh, I hear that, so one of the weird things that happened this week is both Livy 
my, my wife and I had to download these dating apps to like create these profiles. It all got a bit weird in our house. But anyway, I'm told, uh, having never actually been on Hinge, that two truths and a lie is a, a kind of common thing. If you've never been on, I'm sure you've played two truths and a lie in, in some kind of setting anyway. So I got the, the AI chatbot to do two truths and a lie from David's perspective. See if you can work out which one of these is the lie. Uh, so firstly, uh, I am the king and warrior of Israel. I've kind of given that one away. Um, I wrote many of the Psalms in the Bible. And number three was, I can fly like a bird. <laughs> Either artificial intelligence is really good and it knows that David would have been really bad at this game or we're not actually in that much danger of AI taking over the world. I don't know which it is. Um, but yeah, that, that second thing, important thing to know about David, he, he wrote loads of the Psalms in the Bible. I think this is one of the really cool things about looking at his story. So I've been reading uh, some books recently and uh, like a series of fiction books that have also been made into a TV show. And so I've kind of been going, reading one book and then reading the, watching the series of the show that that book is, is based on. And they're both great. I really like the TV show, but it's nowhere near as good as the books. And the reason is that the books, they, they're really good interesting detailed characters and you get to see not just like what do they do and hear what do they say you get to get into their kind of inner monologue you, you know what they're thinking and what they're feeling um, and you get to understand a bit more about their their motivations and I think that that kind of extra level of insight is the kind of thing that we get with, with David because he wrote many of the psalms these kind of poems and songs that we find in the bible so we've got a, a a good couple of books where there's loads of stuff about David kind of telling us what he did and, and historical accounts. But then we've also got these Psalms, which are, are his thoughts, his feelings, his prayers. So really interesting to learn about how did this guy relate to, to God? The thing about dating profiles, though, is that people only really put on the things that they want you to know like the things that they think are really good. And there's loads of those things about David. He, he was great in many ways, brilliant example. Um, and he was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Like, how good is that? That's a great description. He's also not so great. In fact, really, really, really not great at times. And he's used as a, a counter example, like when it goes really badly wrong, when people do really, really bad things uh, and who not to be and how not to try and follow God. Um, he was an adulterer, and then he tried to cover up that by sending someone to be killed in a war. And uh, he wasn't a great parent at times, and his kids rebelled against him. And uh, he was deceptive, deceitful. He was a, a liar. He was misleading people. He was very, very violent, like gratuitously violent, I would potentially argue. Um, and like, not good stuff that David's doing. And so that's one of the things that we want to try and capture as we, we go through this series, looking at, at David. We want to learn from the, the ups and the downs of his life. We want to be really honest that there's some difficult stuff that we've got to wrestle with if we're going to be looking to David as an example in, in any kind of way. How do we, we reconcile the really rubbish stuff? So we're looking at the, the ups and the downs, the, the rise and the fall. So um, let's probably turn to the kind of the, the main story for today. But actually, uh, a couple of outtakes from my weekend with the AI chatbot. Um, they can do art. I don't know if you knew this, but AI can now do art. So here's a few things that didn't make it onto the dating profiles because they, they've been actual artworks. <laughs> Here, uh, I asked 
da for David in a Wales shirt, um, for David leading worship at a cool church, and this one, the exact instructions to the AI was, I want to see David wearing wavy garments like a Bristol Uni student. Um, that's, that's what we've got. Pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Anyway, that's the outtakes. I promise that uh, there is no more artificial intelligence used anywhere in this talk. Um, so you're just stuck with, with my thoughts, which may not be a good thing. Um, but if you want to know what, what ChatGPT thinks about David then, and the story we're going to tell today, you can look that up yourselves afterwards and let me know if it's better. Um, so yeah, David, we're going to get into the story for today. Um, so we meet David in 1 Samuel 16. And immediately before this, there's a, another very dramatic chapter that is worth just talking a little bit about the kind of this context before David arrives on the scene. So I already mentioned that David is the second king, eventually, of Israel. When we first meet him, he's, he's just a teenager. He's a shepherd. Um, and there's another king, the first king of Israel, a guy called Saul. And so the chapter before, this, this crazy thing happens. Um, Saul is, is king, and it starts kind of well. He's he's pretty good king. He does kingly things, like goes and fights wars and um, enforces justice. And most importantly, he follows God. He does what God says. He's got a relationship with God. God talks to him. God gives him instructions. Saul follows them. That's the, the, what you want from the king of God's chosen people. So that's all good. Um, but then it, it starts to go quite rapidly downhill. There's um, a guy who the, these books are named after. He's called Samuel, and he's a, he's a prophet. His job is to do prophety things, like tell the king what God is saying. And so he, he goes to Saul one day, and he says, got a message for you from God. God says you need to go and, and find these old enemies of Israel, and you need to, to fight them, and you need to kill them all. They're not great instructions, like they're not nice instructions, but they're pretty clear. He says you need to kill all of the people and their sheep and their cows and their donkeys. So Saul goes and he does that, um, more or less. The problem is the less bit. He does fight them, he does win, um, but he spares the life of the king, takes him as a prisoner, and he lets his soldiers run away with a load of the really good sheep and the cows. And that was not in the instructions. And so we've got this, uh, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible because Saul and, and the lads are, are hanging around. They're enjoying uh, kind of the feeling of having won. They've got some sheep and some cows with them. And someone says, Samuel's on his way. So they're all like, oh flip, we're not meant to have these sheep all these cows. And so then what happens is they kind of run around and uh, they're like shoving cows behind hay bales and they're like taking off their jackets and they're, they're piling the sheep under the jackets to try and hide them. And Samuel arrives and, uh, and Saul says, God bless you, I, I've done what God said. And there's this awkward silence and Samuel kind of looks around and then you just hear this solitary meh come from under the, the pile of cloaks. And Samuel says, What's that I hear? Is that a sheep? And he knows that Saul has not done what God said. And he delivers this, uh, this line, he says, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. This is the dramatic kind of scene that happens before we meet David for the first time. There is a king, but he gets fired. Samuel slams down his P45 on the table and he walks out. It doesn't actually, that's an interesting thing, is that 
we, we hear this. We know that God has rejected Saul as king. But actually, at this stage, it's only Saul and Samuel that know that. Saul continues to be the king for a very long time after this, but he knows that he's no longer God's chosen person for that job. He knows that God has found someone else who's going to be the king. Um, And that's a pretty nervy position for him to be in because basically the only way you stopped being a king in those days was you got killed. You didn't abdicate, you you just, you got killed. And so Saul knows that his days are numbered both as king and as being alive. Um, So he's he's pretty stressed out about that for the rest of um, the, the chapters that we read about him. But really interesting context. We've still got Saul as king, but we know that God has rejected him. So from there, Samuel uh, has some some more instructions, and this is where we get to to meet David. Samuel is told to go and find the new king uh, and perform this ceremony that that we'll get to. And so uh, Samuel gets gets back on his donkey. He taps in Jesse's house, Bethlehem, into Google Maps, uh, and he follows that because that's where God's told him to go. And what he knows at this stage is that he's, he's off to go and find the next king and perform this ceremony. So he rocks up at... Jesse's house. And Jesse has uh, a load of sons. And Samuel knows that what he's looking for is a, a kingly type person. And a king was basically one type of person. They had to be kind of big, strapping warrior types. Because either you weren't born a king and you had to make yourself a king by killing another king, or you were born to be a king and you had to spend your whole life trying not to get killed by the people who were trying to kill you so that they could be king. So there's a lot of fighting involved. And so you had to be a big strapping warrior type. So Samuel rocks up, gets off his donkey, sees the first one of Jesse's sons, who is perfect, big strapping warrior type. So he says, ah, that must be the guy. And he he starts getting his ceremony bits and bobs out to, to do this ceremony. And, and God stops him. God says, no, 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 no. Stop being so shallow. That's not the guy. Um, there's a famous verse here, which is people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the things of the heart. That's really interesting. Samuel thought he knew what he was looking for in a king. He thought he was looking for someone who fit basically the mold of Saul, the existing warrior type king. But God said, no, you're not. So they, they line up all of, uh, all of Jesse's sons, well, seven of them, and they go through him in turn. And Samuel sort of says, God, is this the, the next king? And God says, no, that's not the next king. Is this guy? No, not that guy. This guy? Not that guy. Get through these seven quite big warrior type sons, uh, and it's none of them. And he says to Jesse, have you got any more sons? And Jesse says, I've got one more. He's out in the field with the sheep. And so they call, call him in. And this is where we meet David. Enter kind of stage left, David. He's just this teenager who's been looking after some sheep. The Bible's very flattering about him, actually. It says he's really good looking. And it kind of, it makes you a bit suspicious that maybe he was, I don't know, somewhere involved in writing this or whatever. Because it's, it's just kind of like, it's, it's too much. Um, I don't know if he was. Anyway, uh, David turns up. And as soon as Samuel sees him, God says to him, that's the guy. That is my chosen king. That is my chosen replacement for Saul. And he's looking at this teenage shepherd who is the youngest son uh, of, of eight brothers, who is the kind of the least to look at. And God says, that's the one. Uh, and so he, uh, he starts to, to perform this ceremony that, that he's come to, to perform. 
It says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. There's a couple of things that I want to, to kind of pause here in the story uh, and call out. There's, there's two ideas that I think we need to understand. The first of them is the idea of, of calling. David had this really clear calling on his life from this young age. He was called to eventually be the king of Israel. He was called to be the kind of king that Saul had failed to be. He was meant to lead God's chosen people. Uh, and so what a calling is, is, is it's a part that God has for you to play. It's a, a role that he's got for you to play. It's, it's certain ways that, that God is intending you in your life to behave. The things that are meant to, um, to happen, that you're meant to fulfill. That, that's your calling. And in David's life, this was really clear. And so I wonder, does anyone here feel like they've got a, a calling? Do you know what your calling is? Sometimes in church, we, we talk about calling and, uh, and maybe we think of, of a few special chosen people as, as having a calling. You might think of uh, missionaries who've been called to like a particular country. They've got a real passion for a particular country and they're, they're going to go there and, and minister to people there. That's, that's a calling. Or maybe you think of kind of a, a vicar who is going to a tiny little parish in the north of Yorkshire with like three people. And that's, that's a calling. And we think of those kind of particular standout things as callings. But actually, I think just by being a Christian, we can already tap into a knowledge of, of some types of, of calling that we all have. There are things that we're all called to do as Christians. We're called to, to follow Jesus and, and try and live in the sort of way that Jesus lived. We are called to spread the good news and, and to, to make disciples of, of all nations. That's a calling that, that we all have and, and we all share. We're called to, to fight for justice and to, to, to fight for those who are less fortunate than us, that, that have less power than us. That's a, that's a calling. We're called to love our neighbours. That's a calling. So just by being Christian, I, I think that we've got these, these general callings which are wrapped up in our, our identity and it's kind of general, but also I think we, we should take that as being very specific to, to us. I think that's that anyone can take those, those callings and say, that, that is my calling. But also, people might find that they, that they have a particular calling to, to other things. This might be for the whole of your life. You might get a sense of a calling that defines your whole life. Or it might be something that actually, just for a, a season, maybe for a matter of months or years, or, or I mean, potentially even days, you might have this feeling of having a, a calling to something in particular. And as we wait on God, as we get to know God, as we pray, as we read the Bible, as we actually pay attention to the things that he has kind of created us to be passionate about and interested in, from all of that, you might start to get a bit of a sense of a, a calling. Maybe it'll be super crystal clear. Maybe it'll be actually really murky and you just sort of think, well, here's, here's a thing that I just feel that, that God has put on my heart. Maybe there's a calling there. For David, it was really clear. He was called to be the king of Israel one day. So let's just hold that idea, but, but just you know, sit with that. What, what's your calling? 
The second idea that we've got here is the idea of anointing. So anointing is this ceremony that's just taken place where Samuel has got out this horn full of olive oil and he's poured it over David's head. This was a ceremony that applied to, to three groups of people in the Old Testament in the Bible. Prophets, priests and kings. And, and what they all have in common is they have like these particular roles in what, what God is doing, the way that God is leading his people. You could think of them as being people who have this, this role in some way to be a, a bridge to, to God, a bridge to heaven, whether that's in a, in a worshipful way, whether that's in a, a kind of a, a leading way, uh, whether that's in a, a speaking the voice of God way. They, they all have this element in which they're, they're a bridge to, to God, a bridge to heaven. But I think what it particularly symbolizes and, and the way they fulfill that role is that, that anointing is a sign of the promise of the presence of God being with you. That's, that's what pouring that oil on, on, their, on David's head in this case means. It's, it's this sign that, that the presence of God is with you. And it says that in the passage. It says that from that day on, the spirit of the Lord was with David. And what's cool is that as, as Christians, um, we know that the presence of God is, is with all of us. We have that promise. We, we know that God has promised that his presence is with each of us. And sometimes in church, we, we might use oil. We might kind of do some anointing with oil. That's, that's still a, a symbolic thing and, and can be really important. But actually, all of us can feel that we are anointed because we have the presence of God with us. And we know that as a, as a promise. For David, it was more of a, a unique thing. At that time, actually, it was more of a unique thing that he was anointed and the spirit of God was with him. So we've got the, these two ideas just to, to keep in mind as we, we move on with the story. That idea of, of calling. What's David's role to play? His role is to be the king an anointing. He has been anointed. He's been set apart. He has had this sign that the presence of God is particularly with him. I think those things are, are linked, but we'll get to, to more of that a bit later on. For now, actually, what happens next in the story is everyone kind of goes about their usual business. David's been anointed uh, and he knows that something special has, has happened, that there's something from God there. Uh, it's not actually really clear from, from the Bible whether he knew that he'd been anointed to be king one day or whether he kind of had questions about, you know, where does this sit within that prophet, priest, king thing? We don't really know, but something important had happened. But he just goes back to being a shepherd and playing his harp, and writing his poetry and waiting on God night after night after night. And there, even if he did know that, that he was going to be king one day, there wasn't really much of a framework for him to understand that because Saul was still the king and he didn't have any instructions of how that was going to change. So everyone goes about their, their normal life. And then we turn the page and we get to the next chapter and dramatic scene change. We have this, uh, this kind of 
super dramatic landscape of a valley with two armies lining up either side. On the one side of the valley, you've got the, the Israelite army led by King Saul and they're camped out in their rows. And on the other side of the valley, you've got the Philistine army and they are camped out. And these two armies are there and they are, they're kind of facing off against each other and um, against the, the backdrop of probably like thunder and lightning and dark skies. And it's all like ominous. There's this, this war that is just on the brink. And there was a thing in, in kind of ancient warfare where uh, sometimes you would try and avoid an all-out war by having two people, one person from each army, come and fight each other. One-on-one -on -one combat, and whoever won, their army was the winner, and the others would, would surrender to them. And so the Philistines have a guy who is well up for this. His name is Goliath, and he is a pretty big dude. He is nine foot nine, according to, to the Bible. He's this towering giant, and he is decked out in this, um, this golden armor that looks like snake skin and he has this massive spear and what he does every day is he goes out into the valley into the space between um, these two armies and he he says he, he basically shouts at the Israelite army a, a battle challenge he calls for them for one of them as a champion to come and to fight him and says if you beat me then your army wins if I beat you then my army wins and, and he does that every day. And Israel and King Saul are absolutely quaking in their boots. They are terrified of this guy. No one wants to go and fight him. No one wants to go and square up against Goliath. And that's fair enough. He's really big. He's got a really big spear. The way he, he's also a veteran of, of like many wars. So this is something he has done before. And if he wasn't in one-on-one -on -one combat, he was kind of big enough that the thing he would probably do is have a wall of people in front of him with shields and he would be leaning over over the top and stabbing people in the face with his spear like he's that big he's really scary no one wants to go and fight him David has three of his brothers who are in Saul's army and they're, they're there. They're the big kind of warrior types, you'll remember. And, and they are not interested in going and fighting him. But David is running back and forward, kind of looking after the sheep, but then also bringing supplies to, to his, his big brothers who are, who are there. And they've been there for 40 days. And every day, Goliath has come out and he's issued this challenge and no one has been up for it. And this day... David hears it. David hears Goliath's challenge. And David is outraged. He says when he's heard this, this challenge from Goliath, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Samuel sees what is happening in a very different way to everyone else. Everyone else is terrified. And, uh, and David, sorry, says, what are we doing? Like, we are on God's side. Why does no one want to deal with this, this insult, this disgrace on Israel, on God's name? Why are we so scared of this guy? 
And so David sort of says, well, if no one else is going to fight him, I'm going to fight him. And everyone else like does a double take. They think this is ridiculous because David is this 15 year old shepherd. He is not a big warrior type. And Goliath is Mahusif. And David goes to, to King Saul actually and says, look, I, I will fight him. I will do something about this. And, and Saul initially says, no, you won't. That is absolutely ridiculous. What a suicide mission. But David's response is, is this. He submits his resume and he says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Weird opening. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David is well up for this. And this is where we get to our, our third idea We've got the calling and we've got the anointing. The third important thing that David has is a gifting. David is not actually as insane as you might think, because David has had practice with this. As he says, he is actually used to defending these sheep from lions and from bears. And the way that he would do that is he'd have a, a particular weapon he had a slingshot and we're not talking about the kind of like elastic band slingshot that you might have used to annoy your teachers in school by flicking paper at people. David's slingshot was a, a pretty formidable weapon. It was kind of this, uh, this cloth thing that you'd spin around and he'd spin it six or seven times a second, like get this really up to speed with a stone in there and release it. And the force that uh, you'd generate by that, the sort of stopping force, if you do the maths, someone's done the maths, apparently a stone coming out of a slingshot by someone who's really good at it has the same sort of force as a bullet coming out of a handgun. This is really powerful and he could be super accurate with it as well. But people with these slingshots would take out birds mid-flight. So this is not just a, a child's toy. This is a serious weapon and, and David has practice with this. He's gifted with this. He has been out in the fields night after night protecting the sheep by training this. You know, he'd probably line up glass bottles and tins on the wall and like, you know, slingshot them and practice his accuracy and all that sort of stuff. This is something that actually he knows he's good at. He backs himself for and he sees an opportunity to to use his gifting. And so it's, it's still a, a risk. It's still a big risk, but David has the range, whereas Goliath has the kind of the brute force. Uh, and so David starts to, to head down into the valley and he picks up these stones ready for his, his slingshot. And he knows that this isn't a sure bet, but he backs that he, he's going to be able to do this. He's got to get it right. He's kind of got one shot because if Goliath can just come at him and eliminate that range, David doesn't stand a chance. But he, he starts to go. They have this shouting match to start with. They both kind of hurl insults at one another and that sort of thing. And, and 
and David is very offended on God's behalf and Goliath starts to, to come for him and David winds up his slingshot and he releases it and in slow motion this one stone flies towards Goliath's head and it hits him in the forehead right in this, uh, this gap in his helmet and it says that Goliath falls down. We don't know if he's unconscious, we don't know if he's dead, he's definitely dead by the time David takes Goliath's sword and chops his head off. David has has won. He has he's used all of these things that have come together and he has he's defeated Goliath. And so I hope you don't mind me suggesting that maybe the story of David and Goliath isn't quite the like classic underdog story that we sometimes think it is. Because it's it's not actually the story of this tiny shepherd boy like completely impossible against all odds defeating this giant. It's actually a story of, I think, three things coming together in a way that is actually, it's really probable and predictable and replicable. I think that makes it way more interesting and also much more relevant to our lives. And what I think the message of of the David and Goliath story is, is this. If you want to realise your calling, you've got to practise your gifting and trust your anointing. David's calling was to be king, and he's not king at this point, but this is a turning point where he steps up and and actually when he does become king, it traces back to to this moment. Many, many, many chapters later, many years later, um, the people... Saul has Saul's died. Saul's killed himself actually, um, because he he failed, and and there was this whole thing, and um, and the people come to David and say, "Well, we want you to be our king." And what they say is, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns, and that all links back to this moment where he defeated Goliath. He stepped up and did what Saul should have been doing. It was Saul's job to make sure they defeated the enemy. And he didn't. He was, he was failing. He was quaking in his boots. But David stepped up and he did it. The people immediately after he's defeated Goliath, they are singing in the streets and they're saying, Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. He's actually only killed like one guy at this point, but they're attributing a kingly victory to David. This is one of the moments that defines David. And he shows that he can bring together his gifting and his anointing to realize his calling. When we go back to that um, that chapter, there's a really interesting Davidism. Um, when we see this uh, moment just before he he goes to fight Goliath, he says that your servant has killed both the lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. What he's done there is in the same breath, he's just suddenly switched from, he starts out talking about his abilities, his kind of, his resume, his giftings. And then he finishes that thought by saying, the Lord will deliver me. It's this idea of these, the gifting and the anointing coming together. He's saying like, I'm practiced in this. I can do this. I've trained for this. And God is with me. His presence is with me. And that's why I'm going to be successful. 
He trusts his anointing. He trusts that the presence of God is with him. That's why he, he kind of combines that with knowing that, yes, I can do this in some circumstances. I can, I can get lions, I can get bears to know that, yeah, I'm going to be able to use that gifting and God's going to make sure that it works for his glory. So that's, I think, the message of, of David and Goliath. That's our big idea. If you want to realize your calling, you've got to practice your gifting and trust your anointing. You've got to practice the things that, that God has given you and that, that you realize that, that maybe there's something here that, that I'm good at. That could be in a, in a work setting. Perhaps there are particular skills that you have. Perhaps you're a really good educator. Perhaps you're a really good analyst. Perhaps you're um, really good at, at public speaking or, or communications. Perhaps it's nothing to do with work, actually, but maybe you're really, you've got a gift of, of patience. You've got a gift of empathy, of being able to form connections with people and, and understand them. Perhaps you've, you've got gifts that um, perhaps no one else would know about. Maybe you've got a gift of, of prayer. Maybe you feel like you've got a calling to to prayer. All of these things can, can come together. And then we've got to trust that God's presence is with us to realize our calling. I think that actually it doesn't necessarily matter if we know what our calling is. Like we don't necessarily need to, to know, right, that's, that's what God's telling me to go and do. I'm sure there are loads of people who go through their lives and never really have a sense of calling, but they're just trying to follow Jesus in in the individual decisions and they're, they're using the things they're good at and they're looking for the opportunities like David did to go, well, here's something I can bring to the table. I'm going to trust God. And I'm sure that, you know, one day we'll, we'll all get to the, the pearly gates and we'll sit down with God and he'll be able to point out these things in our lives where he said, yeah, actually that's when you invested in that, that thing you were, you were good at. That's when you invested in that gift or you used that and you trusted me and it, it all came together. So I think, Knowing your calling isn't isn't the key thing. So I, I don't think I don't want people to go away from this and go, oh, I don't feel like I know what my calling is. I think the message really is that actually, if you use your giftings, if you invest in the kind of things that, that you're good at or want to be good at, and you trust God to have uh, to be with you, His presence to be with you, you will end up fulfilling the things that God has put you here to do. You will end up realizing your calling. So um, why don't the band, band come up if, if that's all right and, uh, and we'll get back to a, a time of worship. Um, before we do, I'd, I'd just love to, to see if anyone wants any particular prayer for this. We'll, we'll do kind of what we normally do. And um, if you want prayer for anything, there'll be some people in the corner over there who are, who are happy to, to pray for you. Um, but I just wonder, is there anyone here who has a really strong sense actually of, of a calling in their life and would like us to, to pray for that just sort of together as, as family? If you feel like that's you, if you feel like you know you've got a calling on your life and you want some prayer for it, just stick your hand up. Um, I won't, won't labour it. If no one kind of feels that, then that's fine. We can move on. But anyone feel like they want prayer for a particular calling? No, that's all right. Or the, the other group of people, anyone who actually like you're really hungry to pray into trying to hear a bit of a bit of your calling. Um, you, maybe you don't feel like you've got one or maybe you felt like you did. And it's all just a bit confusing. Anyone who would really love some people to stand with them and, and pray that God would speak to them about a calling. Either of those things. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, if you want to stand up, um, if, if that's you, anyone else just now, um, yeah, dream team, um, nice. Could a couple of people near Matt and Olive just pop a, a hand on their shoulders, if that's all right with you two, and we'll just pray for that. Um, any, any last people really want some prayer into either of those things? Yes, love that. Um, if a couple of people just want to stand there and, and pop a hand on the shoulder and, and pray, and I'm just going to pray generally for for all of us. So if everyone, if you if you want to all stand up with me, um, and then I'll pray. We'll get into a time of worship. But Father, um, thank you that that you have real purpose for our lives, and that as we as we go through our lives, there are. Um, things that you really are interested in us doing, you care about us doing, that you prepare good works for us to, to go and do as gifts to invest in and to partner with you in developing and that you promise that your presence is with us. I just pray that um, for, for each of the people who's, who stood, you would speak to them tonight about, about calling, giving them a, an idea if, uh, if, if that's your will as to what you're calling them to, whether that's for a season, whether that's to define part of their lives. God, would you, would you speak to them? Would you anoint them with your presence? And for, for all of us, God, as we, as we worship, as we um, reflect on this story, reflect on your word, would you be making us all aware of your presence? Make us all aware of, of how you are with us. As we go about this next week, would you show each of us an opportunity to use a gift that you've given us for your glory and just remind us as we see that opportunity that your presence is with us. Amen.